Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to come together as your people, to fellowship and to celebrate and to, to hear your word and be transformed by your power. I thank you, Father God, for the children downstairs and that they will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and that we as a church have opportunity to, to fill them with the, the knowledge of Jesus and his sacrifice. I ask, Father God, that you would use us as a church in this community. And I ask, Father God, that you'd encourage us, transform us, and use us. In Christ's name, amen. From uh, the very birth of the church, it has been opposed. The, the church has been opposed in, in a variety of ways. It was not accepted by the Jewish society or the Gentile society. And until Constantine's conversion, the Roman Empire in particular was especially cruel to the church because as people came to Christ, they no longer would worship the emperor. And this was illegal and it was highly offensive. Elsewhere in the Gentile world, persecution came because... Christians no longer uh, worshipped all the idols that were so common throughout the Gentile world. The Jews had a problem with the church because Christians believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And for the Jews at that time, that was just blasphemy. So they didn't want anything to do with the church either. It was in this kind of atmosphere that Peter writes this letter to encourage believers to live holy lives and to find rest in God even in very difficult times. It's a very fitting letter for us today as well. Peter begins this letter with a vital reminder of what the future holds for believers. And this is foundational for the passage today, but it is also foundational for the entire letter. Let's read today's passage beginning in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fabulous passage. He begins with blessed, blessing God. And blessed, blessed means to be well spoken of or praised honored. God is to be blessed because he is the source of everything. There isn't anyone or anything greater. And Peter expands the idea of blessing God by calling God, he he uses the phrase God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very Christian statement. This was very church, if you will. The Jews blessed God as their creator and their deliverer from Egypt. Christians bless God as the father of Jesus and as their father. 
If you remember, every time Jesus addressed God, he called him Father or my Father, except for one time. And that's when the Father forsook Jesus on the cross as he was carrying our sins. This idea of addressing God as Father broke Jewish tradition. And and when Jesus called God his Father, he was also claiming to share in the nature of God. There's many places where you can see this. One place is John 10.30. It's very, very simple. Jesus clearly states this. I and the Father are one. This would have infuriated the Jews. Peter also uses the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. Three names. This is also very Christian. This is Christian language. In that statement, Lord identifies him as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Jesus identifies him as the incarnate son. And Christ identifies him as the Messiah, the king. He covers it all. Peter says that Jesus, according God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. This is a very important concept, and it's important for us throughout the entire book. We need to continually remember that every person is in a helpless condition. Remember Ephesians chapter 2. It tells us this, beginning in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Helpless. Dead. Last time I checked, dead is dead. And because of this helpless condition, a person is saved only by God's compassion demonstrated in His mercy and grace. Without His mercy and grace, no one is saved. So we need to to establish some some groundwork so we, we know the difference between mercy and grace. It's very important. God is merciful towards people who are dead in their sinfulness. You were dead in your sins and God showed you mercy. So mercy is directed towards a person's black-hearted, wretched, miserable condition. He shows you mercy in that. Grace, however, focuses on the sinner's guilt, which is the reason for the sinner's condition. And each and every person is guilty. God's mercy, this is a good way of thinking about the difference. God's mercy changes a person's condition and God's grace changes a person's position. Both of those, grace and mercy, are freely given by God. They are a gift from Him. There's nothing that you can do as a human being, to acquire God's grace or mercy. It's a sovereign act of God. That transformation that occurs in condition and position is the only way a person avoids an eternity in hell. And only God has the ability to transform a a sinful heart. 
The only way that we can escape an eternity of hell is by the grace and mercy of God. In verse 3, Peter tells us the, the means of this transformation, the beginning point of this transformation is the new birth. And the new birth does something else. It, it gives believers a living hope. If you think about it, if, if Ephesians is correct, and we know it is, then unbelievers are dead. Unbelievers then have no hope. They have, you could say, a dying hope. They have no future hope past death. How can you have any hope in that? I've seen this many times when I've traveled to India, when we've encountered people in the Hindu system, and, and you begin to teach about Jesus and, and the hope that we have in Jesus, and people just flock to the message of Jesus because it's something so different from what they've heard because they actually have hope. Believers have hope in a glorious future. Very important for us. Peter describes this hope in his second letter, 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We have that to look forward to. And that's only one place in the scriptures that talk about our future place. This same hope, this hope in the future is what motivate Paul to write to the Philippians. Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A very important statement because those who are outside of Christ fear death. Believers do not fear death. I do not fear death. Death does not end our hope as believers. Instead, death is the door to the glorious, amazing presence of God. Death is the beginning of unhindered, exuberant fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the angels, and other believers. It just doesn't get any better than that. This hope is also connected to an eternal inheritance. So you've got all this 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 eternity of being with God and and the glory of all that. And and God has an inheritance for you. And that inheritance and all of the future, all of that is made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. It's made possible by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This idea of the inheritance is crucial to understanding this passage, and it's also crucial for us to understand the entire letter. The point Peter makes is believers are to praise and glorify God because they have already received the promised inheritance through their saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you already have eternal hope. You already have an eternity. You also already have an inheritance. Inheritance sometimes is hard for us to understand. You receive something from someone. I inherited some things from my grandfather. Helps me to understand inheritance very well. 
Um, it was a great inheritance. I inherited his fishing pole and his underwear. The fishing pole hangs in my office. We'll come to that in a minute. Until the time God comes or we die, God is maturing each believer. He's maturing us so that our lives as believers are progressively more consistent with our position as believers and with the inheritance that we have in Christ. In regards to the inheritance, Peter uses three terms to help define inheritance. The first term is imperishable, which means not corruptible, not able to be destroyed. It cannot be done away with. What God has in store for you is there perfectly preserved. It, it, it can't be corrupted. The second word that Peter uses is undefiled. This word means unstained or unpolluted. And remember that because of Adam and Eve's sin, everything in creation is polluted by sin. And it's flawed. And sometimes I struggle with that because I look at creation and I think, wow, look at that flower, look at the mountains, look at, look at those clouds. Look at what, what's around us. And yet, because of sin, all of creation around us is flawed. But the inheritance that God has given to believers is not and cannot be polluted by sin. It can't be polluted by sin or any other force. It is perfectly flawless. Wow. That inheritance of the fishing pole, I mean, I, I love the thing, but I can't use it. That's why it's on the wall. It's, it's the, the bamboos de decomposing. It, it's very, very fragile. That inheritance is flawed and will go away. The inheritance that God has prepared for me and for you as a believer in the future cannot be polluted, cannot be destroyed. The third word that Peter uses, it's more than one word in the English, will not fade away. And that phrase, will not fade away, translates a Greek term that was used to describe a flower that is not withered. So when I buy flowers for my wife, initially the, the flowers are not fading away. But eventually they do. So this term is describing a flower or something that has not withered and died. Eventually those flowers that I give to my wife, they wither and they die. She still loves me. And the idea behind this this is that the inheritance of the believer will never, ever lose its splendor or suffer any form of decay. How great is that? Do you look forward to that? Peter then goes on and, and, and he says the inheritance is reserved in heaven. And that term reserved, it means guarded or watched over. 
And in reality, if you think that through, the, the inheritance of the believer is in the most secure place in all of the universe. Who's watching over it? The sovereign of the universe. Where's it at? In heaven. Who's going to break in? <laughs> Go ahead and try that. Let me know how that works out for you. The believer's inheritance is absolutely, perfectly secure. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be damaged. It will not fade away. Jesus spoke of this security when he said this in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that last phrase, where your heart is, that's, that goes along with what Peter's after. What are we focused on? In verse 5, Peter goes on and he's talking about believers who are protected by the power of God through faith. And, and I believe the way this is written, it's not just believers are protected, but our inheritance is protected. They're, they're, they both go together. How are they protected? By God. There is no limit to God's power or ability. Amen? He is unlimited in his power and ability. So in that unlimited power and ability, the believer and the believer's inheritance are perfectly protected by God. There cannot be any greater security. A bit earlier, somebody and I were talking about gun safes. <laughs> Find me a gun safe as good as God in heaven. Can't do it. This inheritance of the believer is also fully realized after this life and after human history. And Peter adds, it is ready. And that term ready means that it's waiting for the believer's arrival. It's there. It's ready. It's all in place. You don't get there and he goes, oh man, you know, I've got to go down to this store and get you some more stuff. Your inheritance is there waiting for you. Look for that. Peter tells us it's to be revealed in the last time. So after human history. Now, we want to look forward to that, and we have that eternity. We need to remember as well that we do have numerous benefits of salvation in this life, but the richness and the completeness of redemption is yet to come. This, right now, the, the life that you're having right now, this is not your best life. This is not the best time. That will be the best time. That will be your best life. That hurt. <laughs> Sorry. This future reality that causes believers to greatly rejoice is what, Paul, what, what Peter is getting at. 
Verse 6, he says, in this. So all of this that he's just written is, is taken up. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Salvation and joy go together. They're inseparable. And they're not only limited to our heavenly future. And I believe the goal of today's text, and one of the goals of this entire book, this entire letter, is to encourage believers to fully understand their joy, even when life is incredibly difficult. You can't separate yourself from joy if you're a believer. Even when things are tough and terrible, somewhere inside we just go, Jesus died for me. Whoa. And it's just, it's just there. This idea is, is also not just New Testament. We find this same idea in the Old Testament. One of the places that I liked is, is in Isaiah 35.10. Isaiah writes, And the ransomed of the Lord will return. The ransomed, that's us. And come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. And they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In verse 6, Peter uses the, the words there, greatly rejoice. This is an intense Greek expression. It's intense. Greatly rejoice. It means to be supremely overflowing and abundantly happy. It's not just, yeah, yeah we kind of smile. This is overflowing and abundant. And this happiness can be that way because it's not based on our circumstances. And it's not based on fleeting emotions. We know because we have had enough life that if your happiness is dependent on circumstances, those circumstances could change in an instant. And if your happiness, if, if your joy is based on your circumstances, you will be disappointed. The same thing is true with emotions. Emotions come and go. The joy we have that we can greatly rejoice in, and, and that kind of joy is because it's based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's based on what we have in the future. This term, greatly rejoiced, this happiness, is, is always in the New Testament referring to spiritual joy. And it is usually linked to the believer's relationship with God. That's the foundation of how our joy Works and why it is supremely overflowing because it rests upon our relationship with God. Peter also wrote this in the present tense. That means that the happiness is continual, it doesn't come to an end. This is something that you will have as a believer. This overflowing, continual joy is found in believers when they focus on their future. You 
should know as a believer by now that if you focus on all your stuff, all the problems, all the struggles, there isn't a lot of joy in that. When we get our minds and our spirit on what God has done through Christ, it changes the way we view our circumstances and our joy overflows. Focus on the future. This is why in Colossians, Paul wrote, um, chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This brings us then to some practicals. Peter gets practical. In verse 7, there's practical ramifications. So, so he's referring to all of what he just wrote, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a fabulous verse. And I think we miss a part of it because we kind of skim through the word. So let's take this apart a little bit. Believers who maintain a biblical perspective of their future know that suffering in this life adds to their joy. Because they experience God's grace. So I, I, I ask you, as you go through trials in life, do you ever do that? Oh, I'm going through a trial. This is so exciting because I'm going to experience God's grace. Anybody do that? I'm going to be careful about raising my hand because I know I don't do that. That's typically not how we view our trials. Hmm. When we focus on God, our trials... Give us opportunity to see more of God's grace and mercy and help and strength. We see his love and his greatness even in the middle of our difficulties and trials. And if we go back into verse 6, Peter describes these, as, these trials as being just for a little while. That's because in comparison to, to what we have in the future, the, the trials that test our faith in this life pass very quickly. How long is our eternal future? It's eternal. It doesn't end. That's pretty long. So how long are the trials in this life in comparison? Extremely short. Peter writes in verse 7, Believers rejoice, so that the proof of their faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. The word proof here comes from a word used to describe the assaying of metal to determine its true content and worth after the impurities are burned away. I've done this with my grandfather and my great uncle. Take rock out of the ground and you pound it into a powder and you put it in a crucible and you put heat to it and you melt the powder down and all of the stuff you don't want burns away and you end up, you end up with gold. It's amazing. When we understand the testing of our faith proves its value, proving from that, that idea, testing becomes a source of triumphant rejoicing. 
When you're going through a trial and God is, is refining you, you can go, you know what? This is a really good thing. I can rejoice in this. It's also very important that we understand that Peter uses the analogy of gold here because at the time, it was the most precious of metals. And it usually, as gold is, it usually had to be separated from the useless material it was combined with when it came out of the ground. You can find it occasionally in its more pure form, yeah. But that's, that's the exception. And to do that separating, as I described before, you use heat. It's fire. It's, it's quite a process. Gold is one of those things as well that you can purify a lot. It, it can be highly purified. But gold, the earthly gold, is, is, is not eternal. Earthly gold's not eternal. It'll pass away. We know that from Revelation. Peter makes a very important point by calling the believer's proven faith even more precious than gold. Why? Because the believer's faith is eternal. The faith you have in Jesus is eternal. This process that believers are in of purification brings something else. And this, this is a very exciting part of this verse that I just, I just kept coming to as I studied this. Peter writes, results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is really incredible because if you, if you think through how this is written, what it's saying is that as we praise and honor God and trust Him in our trials and our suffering, He will praise and honor us. I don't think we think in those terms that, that God's going to heap praises and honor on us because of how we deal with our suffering. When he does, I know this from another place as well. Jesus told the parable of the talents to his disciples. You remember? And at the end of that parable, he says this. This is just one place in that parable. He, he says this. This is Matthew twenty five twenty three. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Wouldn't you love to hear that? This is very important for us in the time we live because we live in a time when people in general feel that there is no solid place to stand. There is very little, if any, thing, place in society where you can trust. Who are you going to trust? And life just continues to seem more and more difficult. God's exhortation through Peter to deal with these things that, that are around us and are going to continue to deteriorate. His, his encouragement to us is to trust 
God. Trust what God has done. Look to the future, secured by faith in the risen Christ. You believe in Jesus. Trust in that. That's where we stand. You have a solid place to stand in Jesus. And as you stand there, and as you rejoice in God, you also have the assurance of Jesus one day looking at you, making eye contact with you, and passionately telling you, well done. I wait for that. Nothing will compare. Well done. Father, thank you. That in the work of your Son, you have given us a future of glory and, and great, great things. Thank you that there is so much waiting for us in the future. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly going to the cross to die for us. Thank you that you rose from the dead and you sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father interceding for us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you continue to work in us, that you bring us closer and closer to the image of our Savior. Help us, oh God, to deal with life by looking forward to what you have perfected for us. Thank you. Thank you and praise you. Bless you, God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.